0: Thank you so much. Amen. Praise the Lord for those higher hands. If you have your Bibles. I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew 26. We want to look at the first 13 verses, 1 through 13, and the shadow of the cross this morning. Matthew 26, 1 through 13. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Uh, Lord, thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate teacher uh, behind all of us human teachers. So, Lord, we commit our time in the Word to you now. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Note on the uh, overhead, we have worked our way down uh, in the Gospel of Matthew to chapters 26 and 27, the Passion of the King. Of course, the theme is Christ the King. In Matthew 25, we have Christ prophesying of his second coming in the distant future when he will sit on the throne of his glory and he will judge the nations. In Matthew 26, we have Christ prophesying of his impending death in the immediate future, which would take place in two days at that point. Now it is noteworthy that in the shadow of the cross, Jesus spoke at length about his second coming, showing that he knew the cross was not the end. Now he shared these things with us so that we might know that all these things related to him are being worked out by the sovereign hand of God in perfect accord with his purpose and timetable. And that brings us now to where we are in our study in Matthew 26, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, this formula, when Jesus had finished, concludes each of the five main discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. In each case, it marks a pivotal turning point in the book. Well, upon completing the Olivet Discourse, which he just finished in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus now immediately transitions to his impending death. And what he has to say now applies directly to the disciples. He said to his disciples, verse 2, You know... They knew, you know, that after two days is the Passover. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So they knew very well, as all Jews knew, that the Passover was in two days at this point. Now, as I said with the children, in children's moment, Passover is the oldest religious, religious festival in the world. It's been going on now for uh, approximately 3,500 years, a little more. It traces its history back to Exodus chapter 12. Again, the Hebrews were in bondage down in Egypt where they had been for 400 years. And in that context, God raised up Moses to be a deliverer for his people from the hand of Pharaoh. Well, God instructed his people to take the blood of a lamb and apply it to the sides and over the doorway of their homes. Again, when he passed through the land in the night, if he saw the blood applied, and again, it had to be applied, he would pass over. Now, if the blood was not applied, the firstborn in every home throughout the land would die, which is exactly what happened. All the firstborns in Egypt that night died, but the children of Israel were spared, causing Pharaoh to call for the Jews to leave the land. And again, this event is known as Passover. Now, um, in terms of uh, the event that uh, followed, we call that the Exodus. The Exodus have the Passover, followed by the Exodus, as there was a, a mass exodus by the Jews leaving the land of Egypt. But the Passover lamb was a picture of the ultimate lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sin of the world. Next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, Matthew, or John chapter 1, verse 29. We read there... Uh, John the Baptist introducing Jesus, really. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. God's provision for our sin problem. The Lamb of God. It's not our Lamb. It's God's Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Three years later, after John the Baptist introduced Jesus, two days before it happened, Christ prophetically tied His coming crucifixion to the coming Passover. Just in two days, it would happen. And then Christ was crucified exactly on Passover at the very time they were killing the Passover lambs. Thus, Christ was the Passover lamb that fulfills all the previous typology, thus becoming the all sufficient blood payment, blood sacrifice. For sin, and so we read as Paul. Next slide, thank you. 1 Corinthians five seven. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since truly you are, are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So we don't have to wonder about whether did this. Uh, This uh, typology, does that really fit Christ? Yes, it does. We have a clear statement from the Apostle Paul that it directly applies and is fulfilled in Jesus. So the lamb represents an innocent substitute. The penalty for sin is always death throughout the whole course of human history. The wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament, when a person sinned, they would bring a lamb to the priest confessing their sin. And they were saying, I have sinned, so I should die. That's always the penalty for sin. But I am now presenting this innocent lamb as my substitute. The offender then would put his hand on the head of the lamb. The priest would cut the throat of the lamb, signifying the lamb being this person's representative. Then what would happen is the lamb would die a bloody death. Allowing the sinner to go free. This is a wonderful picture of where we are at as believers in Jesus Christ. The ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus, took our place as our substitute. He bore all of our sin, not some of it. He took all of our sin on the cross, on the tree as Peter calls it in 1 Peter 2.24. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him, that's Jesus, who personally knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. How's that for a grace deal? He gets all of our sin, and we get all of His righteousness put to our account. You can't be any more right before God than having The righteousness of Christ applied to you. Which is what happens in saving faith. This is the good news of the gospel right here. Jesus alone paid the full penalty for sin. We must die on this hill. There can be no compromise here. Not even a little wiggle room whatsoever. He was an all-sufficient payment. And it was a one-time payment for all of sin. There is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You say, well, boy, I'm going to have to give an account to God one day. Yeah, but not for your sin. Not for your sin. Not even a little bit. Because Jesus paid it all. Hebrews ten fourteen says, By one offering, that's the cross. By one offering, He has perfected forever. You can't get in any better position than that, than perfected Forever. This is the good news of grace. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. And this is why we love him. We love our Savior. Because he's everything to us. Well, the disciples had already been told that Christ was going to die by crucifixion. As seen back in Matthew 20, 18 and 19. What was new, revelation. What was new, was that it was going to happen in relation to Passover. Christ here links his crucifixion to Passover. This year, he would be the ultimate Passover lamb, fulfilling all the typology that had gone before him. Now, commentators wrestle over whether this was spoken by Jesus on Tuesday or Wednesday. Of crucifixion week. It doesn't make any difference ultimately in the big scheme of things, but uh, I lean towards this happening on Wednesday with the crucifixion happening on Friday, but you know, you leave this to the theologues to debate it forever and ever, amen. Uh, But note the precision here. Christ specifically says that on Passover the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified, it's going to happen on Passover. Now realize that the Jewish day was from sunset to sunset, from sundown to sundown. Christ was taken in the night, and by mid-morning, he was on the cross. So on the very same day, Passover day, he was taken, and on that very same day, he was crucified. Son of Man is a Messianic title going back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It's uh, the title in the Gospels that Christ most often used for himself, uh, being found about 80 times in the Gospels. But there is one other important point to bring out here. You see, the test of a true prophet in the Bible is that when the prophet prophesies something is going to happen, then it has to happen exactly as he said, which would prove it was from God. That's it's a pretty simple test, right? This is going to happen on Friday. And if it doesn't happen on Friday, you obviously didn't speak for God, right? But if it does, that's evidence that you were a true prophet. And there was the one-strike rule. If you ever struck out even once... You were deemed to be a false prophet and you were to die. Maybe, I know we're living in the New Testament, the age of grace, but maybe we should reflect on the Old Testament principle here. Deuteronomy, next slide, please. Deuteronomy 18. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name. And that's, that's, a mighty, that's a really big thing to do. God told me, I've got a message. Boy, that, that's, a, that's a really big thing to do. If the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak. God didn't give him the message. Uh, I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods. That prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know? How how, how are we going to know? People pop on the pole. I got a message. I got a message. How do you know? The word which the Lord has not spoken. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. As he said earlier, he shall die. But here is the deal, right? Here is the deal. Often the prophets prophesied about things many hundreds or even thousands of years in advance. How could such a thing be tested? You have to live a long time (laughs) to see whether that's true. Well, here's how it worked. Here's how it worked. The prophets who gave long-range prophecies also gave short-range prophecies. If the short-range prophecies were accurately fulfilled, then the long-range prophecies could also be trusted to be fulfilled. Now realize that Jesus in the Olivet Discourse has just previously given a whole host of long-range prophecy details related to his second coming. How can we know they are true? Well, Jesus also gave a series of short-range prophecies and they were all fulfilled to the letter, which means we can also trust him for the long-range prophecies. Well, Jesus here in Matthew 26 two told the disciples that in two days, that's very short range, not 2,000 years, but in two days, specifically in relation to Passover, he would be delivered up to be crucified. Again, it would happen exactly on Passover. Now, some translate delivered up as betrayed, but it literally means to be handed over. And that would seem to imply by betrayal or treachery. Again, the timing here was precise. Repeatedly during his ministry, Christ's enemies had tried to kill him again and again. But that was not according to God's timetable, but now it was his time. The Feast of Passover was the first feast on the Jewish yearly calendar and was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, the Jewish month of Nisan, which was then immediately followed up by the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread from Nisan 15 through the 21st. Often this entire eight-day period was lumped together and genuinely Uh, generally referred to as Passover. If you are looking for internal proof of the Bible's inspiration, then consider uh, Leviticus 23. In this one chapter, uh, God back here in the Old Testament gives a prophetic overview of his plan of redemption as it is centered in the Messiah, as seen in the seven calendar feasts in the Jewish year. Now, these feasts are dealt with throughout the Bible, but only here in Leviticus 23 are they all listed in chronological order. In Leviticus 23.4, it emphasizes that these feasts are according to, and I quote, according to, quote, their appointed times, end quote. Their appointed times. You see, God had a very specific reason for the precise sequence, and timing of these feasts. There are three spring feasts, one summer feast, which we're still celebrating, and the three fall feasts. Now, these feasts all depict the coming redemptive career of the Messiah. In this regard, the first four feasts were all fulfilled with amazing precision in conjunction with the first coming of Jesus. Therefore, the last three can also be expected to be fulfilled with equal accuracy in regard to Christ's second coming. So let me uh, just show you. Next slide, please. There we go. Uh, we got the spring feast, Christ's first coming. Passover, tied to his sacrificial death. That happened on Nisan 14. Immediately followed the next day by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And of course, holiness is made possible, holy living made possible because of the, the, the Passover uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We can now keep the feast. We can live a holy life, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 7, because of what Jesus did on Passover. But that immediately follows. Emphasis holiness. And then the third day, in the 16, guess what we got going that day? The first fruits, which represents resurrection. I submit to you, these are all very intimately identified with and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ at his first coming. Fifty days later, what do we got? The kind of lone summer feast out here, uh, the the feast of Pentecost. And uh, we know the church was born on on Pentecost. Uh, And it kind of stands alone. It's kind of by itself out here. And there's a lot of things that are kind of undefined about it. It's kind of mysterious back there. There's a reason. The church was not revealed in the Old Testament. Now, it was latent there. I mean, it's concealed. It's there, represented uh, in the Feast of Pentecost. That's why I say we're still keeping this feast. We're we're, we're in the church age, right? But there's these fall feasts that yet remain to be fulfilled. They all relate to Christ's second coming. uh, Trumpets, Feast of Trumpets, call to assembly, related to judgment, uh, atonement, Uh, Related to repentance, Israel will ultimately come to repentance, and tabernacles relates to a kingdom rest. But it's a beautiful picture that we have all wrapped up there in Leviticus 23, centered in the Messiah and God's redemptive program. Well, just as sure as the prophetic feasts related to Christ's first coming were fulfilled to precision, and then that of the church has been fulfilled to the letter, So also will the prophetic typology related to Christ's second coming, as portrayed in the fall feast, yet also be fulfilled to the letter. Verse 3. Then the chief priest describes the elders of the people, assembled at the palace of the high priest. Of course, he has to have a palace, you know, nothing secondary for this guy. uh, Who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. So this was a meeting of the religious leaders who were the movers and the shakers of the religious establishment. The predecessor of Caiaphas was his father-in-law named Annas. And uh, the high priest, according to the Old Testament protocol and instruction, was to serve for life. He was in a position for life. But Rome didn't like that idea. Uh, Too much power centered in somebody that just sits there for life. So Rome uh, did not want the high priest to have so much power. So they stepped in and uh, said, No, the high priest can only serve at our pleasure for as long as we are approving. And they made Anna step down. And they replaced him with the son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was evidently a pretty good politician too because he was able to stay in position from AD 18 until 36 which is quite a long time. Now, it's bad when secular government has a role in, uh, in the, the affairs of the church, right? Historically, uh, I mean, that's why we even have, in our, our doctoral position, we believe in the separation of church and state. You know, we really don't want the government running the church, right? Do I have an amen on that? Yes, we do have an amen on that. Amen, we do. Uh, we have that principle here. You know, it's, it's a problem when the government is running the temple, now, Annas was evidently considered by many Jews to still be the rightful high priest. Uh, you know, he was supposed to serve for life. And uh, he is still called the high priest in places such as Acts 4, six. However, Caiaphas was practically serving in that role as assigned by Rome. So, in effect, Israel at this point had two high priests, which certainly was contrary to biblical instruction. Anna still exerted tremendous influence and power behind the scenes. Uh, Caiaphas, however, was the practical functioning high priest in terms of the recognized, you know, what Rome recognized here. And Caiaphas was a Sadducee, and as the high priest, he was in charge of the affairs of the temple. Now, that's a problem, because every time Christ shows up at the temple, we got a problem. You know, he kind of wants to try to take over the temple all the time. He's throwing people out, and The money changers. The money changers! Come on! This is about... We're making money here? This is a problem? Every time Caiaphas appears in Scripture, he is seeking to destroy Jesus. Nice guy, huh? In 1990, by the way, a small coffin called an usury uh, was found in Jerusalem containing the bones of Caiaphas. uh, Verifying uh, his historicity, Uh, By the way, you know, these boxes, they would let the body deteriorate to a point and then they would put the bones in in a box like this called an usury. Uh, It was made of limestone. uh, And this particular usury they found in 1990 uh, had inscribed on it in two places, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, and held the bones of a 60-year-old male, which we believe was the historical Caiaphas. Well, The plotting players involved here, that is, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the high priest, are all thought to be representative of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court in Israel. And they were here for the express purpose of plotting on how best to take out Jesus. Let's have a. Would you like to begin with prayer, brother? And pray about what, for wisdom and guidance here on how to take out Jesus. Think about this. These are the religious leaders. You know, the prayer leaders in Israel. I'm sure they started with prayer, don't you think? Probably not. No. They're here plotting murder. And they were way past deciding on what should be done with Jesus. They knew what should be done with him. He needs to go. He's got to die. They knew they wanted him dead. The only question now is... How do we go about it? They were here to plot murder. It's not a new idea either. Caiaphas, next slide, please. Please. Thank you. Uh, John 11, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. He knew a lot, though, obviously. Just ask him, right? But he says to these, you know, cohorts, you know nothing at all. Here's what needs to happen. You don't know anything. You know nothing else. Nor do you consider that it is expedient. This is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He's going to bring the ruin of us all if we don't do away with him. So these religious leaders felt threatened by Jesus. I mean, he he acted like he owned the temple complex of course he did. Uh, I mean, in the space of three years, he had cleansed the temple twice and no one could seemingly stop him. He consistently exposed the religious leaders as as hypocrites, which they were. He dared challenge their authority, their reputation, their very position. In their minds, he has to go. They knew by now they could not take Jesus down through arguments. You know why? Every time they lost. And he silenced them and humiliated them. Rule number one, we have learned the hard way. Do not argue with Jesus. Do not try to entrap him. He's so much smarter, we always walk away looking like we're humiliated. So they knew they couldn't take him down through arguments, and they dared not take him by force because this comes right on the heels of the triumphal entry. There was still a, a, a populist following. And uh, so we can't, you know, you got, you got uh, many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people here for this feast. You know, not a good idea to try to do something right now. So they decided, okay, we have to do this by trickery. Which is the idea of by stealth in a sly Tricky, deceitful manner. So, verse 5 but they said, not during the feast. <laughs> no, we can't do it now. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So, in their plotting, they all agree, one thing they agreed on here is it has to wait until after Passover, which, in effect, from this point when they're having this meeting, would not be for at least another 10 days. And give them a little space to leave and clear out the city. So it's going to, you know, be at least 10 days, by about two weeks. You we have to wait about two weeks anyway. So they wanted to wait until after the crowds were gone, lest a riot ensue. And that could be bad for them, you know. Uh, that could be bad with them, uh, with Rome. You see, Rome prided itself on keeping the peace. And they demanded the Jews stay in line. So if the Jews got out of line, Rome would come down on, who's supposed to be in charge of the Jews? Who's Rome coming down on? His name is Pilate. Pilate. If the Jews got out of line, they're going to come down, Pilate, why aren't you keeping the peace? And what do you suppose Pilate is going to do in relationship to the Jews? Shouldn't be doing that. No, no, he's gonna come down with a hard hand, and so they're concerned about this. Be especially hard on them as religious leaders. Now, something has to give here Jesus has just said the crucifixion would happen on Passover, so he just said, verse 2. But the religious leaders have determined not during the feast. It's going to have to happen after the feast. Well, who's going to be right here? Well, according to God's sovereign timetable, it had to happen on Passover, and so it did. The religious leaders wanted to carry it carried out in a quiet, stealth manner after the feast, but Jesus indicated it would happen right in the middle of the hustle and bustle of Passover, the busiest Jewish holiday. Of the year. Well, this emphasizes that God is sovereign. God was not going to let them have their way. Actually, He was going to let them have their way, but not on their time schedule, not in the way that they envisioned. It had to happen on Passover. Now, the plans and predictions of the religious leaders were not accurate, but what Jesus prophesied was fulfilled to the letter. God knows because God is in charge. He is sovereign. And you just can't beat sovereignty. Now, no one, humanly speaking, no one, humanly speaking, saw Judas coming into the picture or the part that he would play. That, my friends, changed everything. His middle-of-the-night plan changed everything. Matthew now switches gears and flashes back to a few days earlier. Verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. There are three parallel gospel accounts dealing with this anointing of Jesus. as found in Matthew, Mark, and John. Now there is another time when a different woman anointed Jesus as seen in Luke 7. But that was a completely different occasion that happened earlier in Christ's ministry in Galilee. At this point, Matthew inserts this story thematically and not chronologically. In John 12, 1, we have the chronology for this event as happening six days before the Passover. Christ was addressing the disciples in verses 1 through 5, two days. But now it flashes back to a few days earlier, six days before the Passover. It seems that Matthew inserted it here to provide background for what he is next going to say in relationship to Judas. The contrast between the unfaithfulness of Judas and the devotion of Mary is stark, as is also the insight and discernment between Mary and that of the oblivious apostles, the other apostles. You see, Judas was in the movement for what he could get out of. I'm pretty sure when he was out preaching, the kingdom is at hand, and, and they were allowed to do miracles. It was a pretty exciting thing. We are going into the kingdom. You want to be with us or not? He was in the movement for what he could get out of it. It looked pretty promising earlier. But this incident here that is now recorded about Mary anointing the head and the feet of Jesus was a real turn off for Judas. It seems that this may have been the final straw for him. The event recorded in Matthew 26, 6-13 took place in Bethany, as it says, which was about two miles east of Jerusalem, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. Next slide, please. So uh, here we have the Temple Mount, uh, the Kidron Valley, uh, the Mount of Olives, and just here's the, the, the village of Bethany. So it's not far. It's about two miles outside. and That's where we have this happening. This event took place at the house of Simon the leper. And most agree here, the sense is probably that uh, Simon, who was formerly known as the leper, uh, because if he still had the leprosy, uh, he was not allowed to have any outside contact. And they would have all been guilty here of breaking the Mosaic law, because they were not to have contact with the leper. So it's very possible, and perhaps even probable, that Jesus had previously healed this man who had long been identified with leprosy. By the way, this is the only mention that we have of this particular Simon in the Bible. Some think he may have been the father of Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. But this is just a guess. We don't know. Certainly seems to have had a very close tie with the family. As this uh, uh, event is happening at his house and and the family of Lazarus, Martha and Mary are intimately involved here. Verse 7 A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now we know from John 12 that this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And we know from John that she also anointed the feet of Jesus and then wiped them with the hair of her head. Warren Wearsby says, she is found only three times in the Gospels, and in each instance, she is at the feet of Jesus. A woman's hair is her glory, 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen. 15. She surrendered her glory to the Lord and worshipped him with the precious gift that she had brought. It was an act of love and devotion that brought fragrance to the whole house. Beautiful picture. Now, an alabaster flask was one made of fine marble, perhaps imported from Egypt. The contents were a perfume-like nard. The flask or the bottle had a thin nick that had to be broken in order to extract the contents. Now, according to Mark 14.5 and also John 12.5, it was worth about 300 denarii. Now, a denarii uh, was a a common worker's wage for a day. So we're talking almost a year's salary, for the average working man. That was the worth of the, the contents here. And again, uh, next slide please. Uh, it's, you know, it's a beautiful picture of Her of her anointing his feet with oil. His head and then his feet with oil. And then wiping them uh, with the hair of her head. Holman Christian Study Bible. Since Jesus was Messiah, a title meaning anointed one. Anointing his head was especially meaningful. It recalled the anointing of the Old Testament kings. And that's true. That he is the king, the anointed, one the Christ. Verse 12. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant. indignant. That's a pretty strong word, right? Indignant. I'm indignant. really upset? <laughs> they were indignant, saying, "Why this waste? Why this waste? I mean, this is terrible stewardship. Terrible, 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 indignant. Now, various disciples of Christ were involved here, but from the parallel text, uh, text in John 12, it is clear that Judas was the main instigator. Next slide, please. In John chapter 12, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, "Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor?" <laughs> this he said, "Not that he care for the poor. You care about the poor." But because he was a thief, had the money box, he was the treasure for the group. Had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Woo! Good holiday. This, by the way, is how the devil works. And he, I got to give the devil some credit. He is good at what he does. It's evil, but he's good at it. He often uses insiders to stir up trouble even confusing and influencing those who are true disciples. And they sound so spiritual in the process. The devil's agents, they are the most spiritual-sounding people you ever want to hear sometimes. Warren Wiersbe says, The disciples did not know the true character of Judas. He was a good actor. They did not know the true character of Judas. His criticism of Mary sounded so spiritual that they joined him in attacking her. I mean, what would you do if somebody uh, pours out $50,000 worth of perfume on somebody's feet? (laughs) Good job. (laughs) You might too say, you know, I don't know that this was the best stewardship. We could have fed a lot of people with that money. Huh? Yeah, that's where they were. These men were impacted by Judas' tirade against Mary which reflects how easy it is to be influenced negatively by carnal people who may not even be true Christ followers. Verse 9. For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Now it was customary for many Jews to do something special for the poor during Passover, so they were sensitive to this idea. I mean, culturally, that's a lot of times what the Jews did. It's a time to, to give a special gift to the poor. Again, the value of this perfume was about a year's salary for a common worker. In the United States today, they uh, estimate that would be generally about $50,000 for just an average, you know, common wage earner. That's a lot of money to just pour out in a, in a single anointing. A $50,000 anointing? I mean... That's pretty excessive, the way it seems. Or or so it seemed to the disciples. Of course, Judas, who was leading up the charge, was a thief, as we've already mentioned, in charge of the money bag. And I'm sure he was thinking, this would have been quite a haul for the day. As John stated, he was a total hypocrite, cared nothing for the poor. As I say, this seems to be a decisive turning point where Judas was thinking, if I can get something... Uh, out of this gig I'm going to get out of it what I can by betraying Jesus and then abandon this dead end movement I mean perhaps his reasoning went something like this if Jesus is going to die which he is clearly talking about then that would prove in, in the mind of Judas that he's not truly the Messiah bringing in the kingdom as we promised I mean I'm here for the kingdom going to the cross was not my idea Might as well get out of it what we can. He's obviously not the Messiah. He's going to the cross. The Messiah's not going to the cross. We all know he's not going to the cross. He's thinking that way. So he's thinking, I'm going to get out of it what I can while the getting is good. Verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. Oh, I love this. I love this. Perhaps Jesus overheard them in hushed tones grumbling about the situation. I mean, they were indignant. But as he was aware of it, he confronted them saying, why do you trouble the woman? And you know, Jesus is the Lord. And when Jesus asks you a question, you know, it's all, all just kind of... Mm, mm. And he said, he said, she has done a good work for me. You guys got a problem with that? He didn't say that. I'm saying that. That's kind of the sense of it. Jesus came to her defense. And you know, it's wonderful when Jesus defends you. You know, we have an advocate at the right hand of God, the Father, today as believers. He is our great defense lawyer. He never loses a case. And everyone in Christ, there's no condemnation for those. I'm so thankful I got a good lawyer. You need a good lawyer, you know, once in a while. And we've got the best one in the world. When Jesus defends you, then you are vindicated. You only need one on your side, and that's Jesus. And she had him. Boy, I mean, to tell you, those disciples were all put in their place. I mean, who's this lowly woman? In their culture, I mean, a woman's testimony wasn't even received. I mean, and, and here's Jesus. You know, he, he's going to her defense, and you've got all these high-up apostles, led by Judas, And he puts them all in their place. Now, they completely missed the major point. And you know what the major point is? It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Note the language. As Jesus says, her motives were for me. In her heart, this was truly all about Jesus. She wasn't putting on some show. She was all about Jesus. Now, the disciples failed to properly appreciate Jesus in this incident for who he was and the significance of the moment in terms of the context of what was happening. Mary made this all about Jesus in view of his impending death and sought to honor him accordingly. In contrast to the disciples who were, frankly, oblivious. And so she did so with great insight that they didn't have. Yes, giving to the poor is important. We all agree. But valuing and worshiping Jesus is the number one priority. Jesus himself takes precedence over everything else. John Walford says, Undoubtedly, the precious ointment had been a treasure held in the family for some time. And the reckless abandon with which she dedicated it to the anointing of Jesus was not a senseless extravagance but an act of supreme devotion. Mary loved Jesus supremely, and this was the time and the way to show it. And she did it with everything she had to give. The time to express deep love, application time, the time to express deep love to, to loved ones is not after they die, right? But while they're still living, uh, maybe may we could take a lesson from Mary here. Mary knew what was coming, and she knew this was the time. If ever there was going to be a time for her to express her love and devotion in the supreme manner, it was now. And Jesus appreciated this very much, which is ultimately what matters. I mean, who are we trying to... uh, Who are we trying to impress? Who are we trying to uh, get their approval? It's Jesus we love and serve. And we are to do so supremely. It's his approval that we seek. Verse 11. For you have the poor, Jesus says, with you always. But me you do not have always. Time is very short. Two days away, he's just said. So we saw back earlier, six days prior to that. If the concern was legitimately for the poor, there would be going ongoing opportunities to minister in that way because Jesus said, You have the poor with you always. However, the opportunity to demonstrate their love for Jesus in this life, in the here and now, was very soon coming to a close. Next slide, please. Wycliffe Bible commentary deeds of benevolence are good and always in order. But there would never be another opportunity to do what Mary did. After his resurrection, Jesus promised, I am with you always. But in that case, he was referring to his spiritual presence, which is not to be confused with his earthly presence related to his earthly ministry, which is what he is talking about here. Verse 12, for in pouring out this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Now, it's amazing to me how many commentaries and theologians miss the significance of this simple statement. Many, if not most, commentators say Mary did this not knowing really what she was doing, but that Jesus then applied her actions to his coming burial. But... That's not what Jesus said. Jesus plainly said, "She did it for my burial." This is her motivation. She had his burial in view. This was her motive. She had, a re- she had some thoughtful reasoning behind what she was doing. It wasn't just like, "Well, I'm ultra-skelter, I'm doing this." No. It was a purpose, a thoughtful purpose. She was honoring the Lord in this way because the way the Jews honored the dead in a proper burial was to anoint the body with fragrant oil prior to burial. You see, while others were evidently not listening very closely, and I don't think they were listening that closely uh, to what Jesus was teaching, Mary, on the other hand, was. Next slide, please. In Luke chapter 10, uh, we read, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. A certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Here she is, at his feet. She's lapping it up. She is listening. She is into the word of Jesus. But Martha was distracted. You know, she's got a guest in the house. She's distracted with much serving. And by the way, I, I, I do appreciate the Marthas. Goodness, what are we going to eat if Martha's not working? <laughs> but she's distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, she takes her case right to the Lord. You got a sister, a little sister squabble going here. And so she takes it right to the Lord. You know, that's, really, that's, that's a trump card here, right? I mean, we're going straight to the Lord. And she went to the Lord. Do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? And Jesus said, no, I don't. In effect, uh, therefore, therefore, tell her to help me. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, 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 Martha. You are world worried and troubled about many things. You're distracted. But one thing, one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken from her. I believe this comes into play right here. Mary loved the word of Jesus. She was a good student Listen carefully. In recent days, Jesus had been talking about how he was going to be killed. In Matthew 20, 18 and 19, he had specifically told the disciples he was going to Jerusalem where he would be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes and they would condemn him to death. And then he specifically told them that they would deliver him to the Gentiles who would have him crucified, who would crucify him. Now realize the crucifixion was so brutal. That Roman citizens were exempt from this form of death penalty. Only non-citizens could be crucified. Jesus was not a Roman citizen, and therefore he could be crucified. And the intent in crucifixion was to strip away all dignity and totally humiliate the person to the maximum ability, to the maximum Possible. Now the the idea was this: uh, you cross Rome, and Rome will put you on a cross. That was always what Rome was saying. You do not cross Rome, or we'll put you on a cross. I mean, only really bad criminals would be put on a cross. Crucifixion was for non-citizen criminals, and once dead, they were normally not afforded any dignity in burial. Normally, after death on the cross, a body was left to putrefy on the cross, and then it would be unceremoniously dumped into the city dump in the Hinoam Valley on the edge of Jerusalem where it was left to burn along with the rest of the garbage. Nothing dignified about that. Normally, those who were crucified received no burial whatsoever. Certainly not an honorable one. Mary evidently was taking all of this in, and in light of what Jesus was saying, wanted to do what she could to honor Jesus. I mean, if he was to be crucified, the expectation was that there would be no honorable burial. And so she wanted to do what she could to honor him. In Mark 14.8, Jesus specifically says, in Mark 14.8, she has done what she could. Moody Bible commentary what this woman did honored Jesus and gave him burial preparations under normal circumstances he otherwise would not have received. But once again, God turned what was normally expected on its head and in his sovereignty worked in such a way that Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Again, in perfect fulfillment of prophecy. Next slide, please. Isaiah 53 9. His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now, give Mary high marks. I want to really give Mary high marks. She seems to have comprehended what was happening regarding Jesus' imminent death in a way that none of the other disciples did. As Jesus said, her good part in focusing on the word of Jesus would not be taken from her. She knew what was happening because she had listened carefully and learned from Jesus. And she was able to take that good thing and apply it in a very special and appropriate way for such a time as this. In a way that no one else really understood. Again, Wycliffe Bible Commentary. Only if Mary's act is seen as born of her spiritual comprehension can the tremendous praise from Jesus be properly understood. Now, years ago, I, I, I barely cut to the chase on some of my stories here because, you know, the talk is moving and, you know, we're not going to have this problem in heaven, but we do here. <laughs> years ago, Andrea Sue uh, wrote uh, an article, and in the article she said, and I love Andrea Sue Peterson, writes for World Magazine, but she said, The woman with the alabaster flask of costly ointment did not know she was preparing Jesus' body for burial. I responded to the article, and they printed it in the magazine. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. I said, I love Andrea, but she's mistaken. And she said, the woman who anointed Jesus did not know she was preparing his body for burial. Mark quotes Jesus saying that in anointing him, she has done what she could, even while the other disciples were oblivious to the message he was going to die. That's why Jesus memorialized her. Let's not take that away from her. You know what? Andrea reads what people uh, respond in the magazine, and she, she emailed me back. And she said to me, you know what? I never thought of that. You might be right. Well, she really went up high in my book, you know. Anybody that thinks thinks I'm right, I really like. (laughs) Well, I, I, you know, I'm wrong a lot too. Verse 13, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Even though Jesus is just a few days out before the cross... Yet he knows the cross is not the end. There will be a preaching of this gospel involving his death and burial, as well as his resurrection, throughout the whole world. And so it has been. Ed Glasscock says the use of gospel is significant here in that the pronoun this must identify it with his death and burial, which would lead to his glorious resurrection. And this is good news for the world. And Jesus says, wherever this gospel story goes, this woman, uh, what she has done will be a memorial to her. It will honor her in memory of what she has done. And so it has been. How about this very day from this very pulpit? We're still remembering what she did. We're still honoring her for what she has done. It's recorded in all three of the gospels. Well, these two stories present... Two great contrasts. First, there is a contrast between the esteemed religious leaders who hated Jesus and plotted his death and that of Mary who showed her love and devotion to Jesus in the greatest way she knew. The religious leaders had power, prestige, great privilege, humanly speaking. Mary, as a woman in that society, had no significant power or prestige and uh, was not greatly advantaged by any stretch. Yet in the eternal scheme of things, Mary's devotion is the thing that will be honored forever, as indicated by Christ, as recorded in the eternal word of God. In contrast, let me ask you, where are the chief priests, scribes, elders, and high priests? Where are they? I hate and shudder to think about where they are. Second, if they didn't come to repent, we know, repentance, we know where they are. Second, there's a contrast here between the disciples of Christ who of all people should have gotten it. And that of Mary, who really did get it. The disciples were oblivious to the time and significance of what was happening. Mary, on the other hand, as a great student of the Lord, was tuned in and responded in a Christ-honoring way for which she is eternally remembered. Well, the religious leaders were all about self. Judas was all about self. The other disciples were essentially oblivious at this point. But Mary got it. You know what? It pays to spend time at Jesus' feet and be on Christ's page. Those who do so choose the good part, which redounds to their eternal reward. You know, there are some ads out on TV that are titled, He Gets Us. Uh, And it seeks to make Jesus relatable. With each little story ending with, he gets us. And there's a place for this emphasis. I'm not downplaying that whole thing. I think there's, I appreciate any time Christ is being emphasized in a proper way. Uh, Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 emphasizes, as believers we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. He does get us. And it's good in, in that sense. But I would caution us that Jesus is really not all about me. Uh, In the Christian culture at large, so often the emphasis, it's all about me. I mean, God exists for me. I don't exist for Him. It's all about me. So much is man-centered and self-centered as if God is here to serve us. I submit to you that Mary was not walking around thinking, He gets me. Rather, she was commended... Forgetting Jesus. She was totally Jesus-focused as she anointed his head and his feet with oil and then wiped them with her hair. Jesus says, she has done a good work for me. She did it for my burial. Her focus was totally Jesus-centered. When it comes to Jesus, let me ask you, what's it all about for you? Are you all about self Are you oblivious to the proper place of prioritizing Jesus in the context of what is happening? Or are you in tune with Christ and seeking to honor him in the greatest way you can in terms of what he's doing? And what is he doing? Let me ask you, what is he doing? Well, he just said, you know, sarcasm here. He just said he's going to do this little thing, sarcasm, this really big thing. Called the church. I will build my church. That's what Christ is doing. If we're on his page, I think we're tuned into what he's doing in terms of building his church. So many professing Christians are not really on the Jesus page because you see, they have not really sat at the feet of Jesus taking in his word. And consequently, they're out of sync in terms of the moment and how to really honor him appropriately for such. A time as this. You know what we say around here? Often we say around here, and I'm, I'm the, the lead instigator here, right? We often say, live ready. How many times do we say that through Matthew 24 and 25? Three times, right? Oh, it's a whole lot more than that. We, we say, live ready around here all the time. But you know, there's another thing we say around here, right? You know what we say? You know what I'm going to say. It's all about Jesus it's all about Jesus. Live for Him. Indeed, live ready. Let's stand and have our closing song.